0: This week on The Futurists, Theo Priestley.
1: What kind of world does that leave us for people if that level of automation is, is running rampant in the world? And I think this is the thing that keeps me up at night at the moment.
2: Hey, welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursic, and I'm with my co-host, Brett King, dialing in from Chicago. How are you doing, Brett?
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm I, well, I got a bit of a cold today. I don't know. Maybe it's because the cold, you know, the windy city. It's a bit. Yeah. It was a cold out last night when I was walking home. Maybe that's why. Yeah. But uh,
2: the most miserable that, weather um, in the world. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, I used to live there, and it's like summer is a month long. It's a nice. Well, have
0: you ever summer. tried living in London? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, but London's got London. So there's more True. more there to benefit from than just the weather. Yeah, uh, you speaking know, speaking of which. Speaking of which, you know, one of our jobs on this show is to bring people who are thinking about the future in fresh and interesting ways. And that's why we reached out to Theo Priestley to join us. Theo, welcome to the show.
1: Um, Brett, Brett, Robert, thank you for having me. And if we're talking about the weather, then we all know, I just can tell from my accent, I'm from Scotland and we have the best weather in the entire world. It's like four seasons in one day. <laughs> that's true. What city are you
2: in, Edinburgh? I'm in Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right on. Great. That's a great town. Good to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. I've uh, been checking out your Medium posts, which I found very interesting. One of the things I like about you is that you're willing to do a thing that a lot of people are cautious about. You're willing to put ideas out there that aren't fully baked. You're willing to think about it in an interesting way. That's real fun for our audience to listen to and hear about. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you do as a futurist, your approach to thinking about the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I kind of fell into the, the whole futurist thing. Um, I mean, I've been writing... Um, well, if we go all the way back, I've been collecting comics and science fiction since I was a child. You know, cool. I have bookshelves filled with science fiction. Um, and in fact, if you remember the old analogue um, pulp science fiction magazines from the 50s and 60s, I have 600 copies all the way dating wow. back from the 50s all the way up to 2010s. Um, and... And, and I just found myself immersed in science fiction and always thinking about what's coming next kind of thing. And it wasn't until I was deathly bored doing project business transformation kind of projects that I just found myself, you know, writing about what was actually happening on the ground versus what was what the analysts were talking about. And that just led me to exploring, you know. What I like to think about, in a sense, and like you say, I, I, you know, in my writing, it's very conversational. I wear my heart on the sleeve, and I don't really care if I write something, and it's complete and utter hogwash, um, at the time, and 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 completely unformed, because I want to spark the conversation with other people to think about the what if, and oh, he's wrong because, or he's yeah. right because, and and it's the conversational piece, and and that kind of spark that I really want other people to to take hold of and run with. So I've got no idea how many startup ideas could be sitting in my old blogs, but if someone looked at it and thought, that's a great idea, I'm going to run with it and see where it goes. Good on them, all the best to you, and I hope you raise money and I hope you're a success. But at the time, I just didn't have a clue what the hell I was talking about.
2: Um, Yeah, but that's how how ideas get started. You were just mentioning before we started recording that uh, you were looking back at some of your old blogs from a few years ago. And you saw combinations of ideas that may, at the time they seemed like science fiction, but today they're becoming increasingly realistic. It's increasingly probable. And candidly, that's what futurism is. Myth, I always,
0: right? you know, I actually, I, I, I say um, um, often, you know, because obviously I'm a sci-fi fan as well, um, uh, but I, I will often describe the role of a futurist as short-term science fiction, right? There is science to it, um, but, you know, and because it's not, um, you know, yet alive and implemented, it, it's it can be considered fictional. So um, you know, the sci-fi guys just tend to be longer term. You know, if you you look at a lot of the sci-fi that there's written today, that's the, the big space opera stuff. You know, it's uh, it's maybe ten thousand years in the future or an undetermined you know period mill- millennia in the future. Because it's hard, you know, as William Gibson said, it's harder to write stuff that's near term future today because um, things are changing so rapidly. Mm. But I think it's so bizarre.
2: The present that we're in sounds like a science fiction story to begin with, you know, with all kinds of uh, just look at any newspaper. The, uh, the one difference, I think, you know, we, we bring a lot of science fiction into the show. It comes up in just about every other episode. We are either talking to a science fiction writer or someone who is profoundly influenced by sci-fi like you are. It comes up a lot because I think that that's our habit, right? As people, we like to tell stories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what futurists do or what forecasters do is they do scenario planning. And what is scenario planning if it's not storytelling, right? We posit a scenario right. and then we start to tell a narrative about it. The difference is sci-fi writers do it in a more interesting and accessible and and exciting way. It's more relatable and no surprise, they're better storytellers. Uh, So maybe futurists are
1: just boring science fiction
2: writers.
1: (laughs) That's one way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, uh, we write research reports and unfortunately, it's not peppered with interesting characters,
2: is it? Yeah. We have to ground it in like analytics and data and make it seem more plausible that way. I was just noticing uh, um, one of the authors that comes up quite often in the show is Robert Heinlein. And in 1949, he wrote a book uh, that I thought was incredibly relevant. And I want to bring it up. It's called The Man Who Sold the Moon. And if you haven't read it, it's a short story. It's actually, it's a short book. It's actually quite a fun book because it's about privatized space. And he wrote it in 1949 when we really didn't have a space program. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty awesome, awesome forecasting or awesome vision. And uh, the character in it is a a character named uh, Delos Harriman. Who's this ambitious uh, kind of hard charge and business executive? And it's all about how you would go about the process of privatizing space. Now that story today, when you look back at you, like, well, there's a blueprint. Uh, there's a there's a you know, he set forth a plan or you know, a, a vision and architecture for someone to go fill. And today, it's entrepreneurs like Richard Branson, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, who are attempting to fill those shoes uh, and privatize space. You've written quite a bit about this
1: topic. What's your take about the privatized space race? We're in an interesting time because although the privatization side has, has opened up lots of opportunities for smaller companies to, to essentially take a crack at it, get funding, there's a very small amount of people or, or certainly companies with the, the required amount of funding to actually make a difference and actually become successful. And obviously, one of those at the top of the mind is SpaceX. And if you actually look at where SpaceX has come, privatization has almost led to a monopoly now, where almost nobody can actually touch SpaceX. You have Rocket Lab and other people like that. But really, in reality, who are people turning to? Because SpaceX has not only the rockets, but the rocket cadence or the launch cadence, but also the success. Yeah, And if you are... Doing a you know a multi-million or you know m- hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of research and development to do to launch something in space, you're going to turn to someone who has the success criteria to put it into orbit or to send it yeah, to another body. You are not going to take the risk on something like you know a 3D printed rocket that didn't make the second stage, for example. And so, you know, there is a there is a huge gulf in terms of the privatization between companies who are one of these monopoly yeah Yeah. And, and we're in a monopoly like you say i mean and you've got the dreamers as well which is great to dream i mean obviously science fiction fuels that and people want to mine asteroids and things like that but realistically how far away are we from ever reaching an asteroid to bring something back you know Oh, you know yeah, even yeah. even the smallest amount no we, you know we have not well even- we
0: did do a sample return we've done one sample return mission from an asteroid but um you know there there is uh, yeah. it's but, not a business but you know i mean the i mean space is more accessible now and that's the thing that it, mm. it, it will will change you know uh, the the cost to orbit um you know uh right now i think spacex is running it at what 1100 1200 dollars uh, per kilogram to orbit um, Starship will get that down to um, around $100 kilogram to orbit. The, the space shuttle was 30000 and the Apollo was 50000 So, you know, space is a lot more accessible just because of that lowering of the cost. But, um, you know, I mean, as Elon will argue, it happened because of, like, first principles thinking and engineering.
2: And there's a whole lot of the
0: space industry. Let's get uh, real.
2: NASA was loaded with engineers, but they never managed to achieve. They were never able to drive that cost curve down the way Mm. the way he seems to be able to. And like you say, Theo, it's self reinforcing. Uh, Now I think NASA is entirely dependent on SpaceX uh, to get things into orbit or to get them to the space station. What's going on with the space station right now? Because it seems like this little island of cooperation between the United States, Russia, and other nations. Where, you know, we're kind of all on the on the planet's surface, we're all caught in geopolitical conflict right now and everybody's opposing each other. But but it seems like cooperation still continues in space. Is that true? Um,
1: I, I, did I not read that the, the, the Russians want to pull back? And certainly the Chinese have their own space station anyway, and they don't really want anything to do with it. So... And of course, the space station is now, you know, they're already talking about either throwing it back down or chucking it into a higher orbit to do something else. And and so that's reaching, a, you know, at the end of its useful lifespan. Yeah. And it's kind of like an antique at this point, right? It's, well, it's absolutely. Well, it's,
0: it's what is it? Thirty-five years old?
1: Huh? Yeah, forty
2: years old? Yeah, like parts are breaking and wearing out, and yeah. so on. Yeah, they just a couple of Russian cosmonauts just uh, just moved the radiator out onto the wing today, or something. They just they just did a spacewalk a few hours ago.
1: Yeah, but I mean, you've got you know talking about privatization again. You've got Sierra Space, who's obviously doing some work with um, with closely with NASA. To start building modules for the next generation of space station, and then you've got other people who want to put, you know, Blue Origin or whatever, want to put up commercialized space stations, which I, you know, I find quite an odd idea. Who's wanted to do, send an email or a fax from uh, from the space station? You know, sending sending your exec up in space to do space meetings and then bring them back down. It's kind of like a weird, uh, a weird use case. Let's put it that way. But. Um, you know, our next step is obviously sending up another uh, a replacement space station, and of course, that's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars at this stage. You know, but like Brett said, the well, accessibility. Going
0: the... Go on. Sorry, the next next space station is going to be at the uh, Lagrange point around the um, in lunar orbit, isn't it?
1: Um Yeah, they're talking about Gateway, isn't it? Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, is that you know, to me. And this this is the thing that uh, obviously it's it's all down to cost, money, etc. To me, to actually bin the the current space station entirely, rather than push that out into further orbit and act as a, a kind of midway point if it needs to be, um, or even push out towards Mars or something like that, and actually have it as some kind of you know a science station that could be parked in in another orbit just seems to be a a, a real waste of opportunity, I think. Um, but obviously, I'm not what, in charge. What would be a
2: better use? What would be a better thing to do? Because if they don't do something, it's going to come crashing back down to the, to the Well,
1: they're, they're talking of actually giving it a gentle push uh, rather than it coming crashing down, so they they actually want to actively decommission it and uh, deorbit it. Um, and I think there's probably more value in trying to just push it into another orbit, where or even I mean, it in the so CIS. Yeah,
0: it takes so much effort to get it into low Earth orbit. You know, at what, at what's a hundred tons, or I don't know the the weight of it now. But um, but you know, what? Why would you? You know, if it hasn't completely failed, why wouldn't you? you know continue to make use of it yeah. if you know you could commercialize it you could have spacex take over the administration of it and running it you know spacex is now getting involved in a mission potentially to um service the hubble which they'd sort of written off um so jared isaacman who who was um you know the the, the first private uh, um flight that they did the the you know what, what they call what do they call it the endeavor um, I can't remember now, but he he's looking at doing something with the Hubble. So you know, you know, SpaceX is a logical partner. Mm. Now, they've had to talk about of the other firms that are in the space. space.
2: besides SpaceX, let's talk about some of the other firms. Virgin orbit notably just went belly up, right? they're mm. auctioning that off next month. Uh, that was uh that was they say that it was a private space company that could never find a business model. And Theo, to your point, they were trying to find a way to fit into the market space. Uh, of offering privatized launch services of some kind you know, for, mm-hmm. for companies that didn't maybe want to deal with SpaceX or Blue Origin or any of the other leading companies. Uh, but they never managed to find like a product market fit. And as a result, uh, they went bankrupt a month ago and now they're likely to get sold off on the chopping block next month. Uh, what's, what's happening in the UK? You, you've written about the UK companies, but you've been quite critical about the UK's approach to privatized space.
1: Yeah, I mean the UK. Um, the UK is famous for, I think, trying to stand toe to toe with um, the US market and certainly uh, the, the European market, but it's never had the funding behind it. I mean, if you look at some of the um, announcements made by the UK Space Agency, for for example, it's like oh, two million we've raised you know there's a two million pound grant and it's like well that's great and then it's but spread across 60 companies over the next three years and it's like what i'm (laughs) I'm giving you twenty thousand dollars i could get a loan for that then um you know that's that's the kind of effort i think that the uk likes to to talk about and it's the same with ai as well They, they always boast about some huge inordinate amount of money but it's spread over a long period of time and it has to be spread over a certain number of companies, and then it becomes very diluted in that sense, in terms of the real impact that money can do. Um, and this is why, you know, companies like um, Orbex, for example, for example, or Deorbit is another one. Um, although Deorbit's got a place in the UK, but I don't think it's fully UK. I think it's Italian. But Orbex, for example, was started in Scotland, um, and they're uh, they're another sort of launch launcher, um, and they've had to raise outside. They've raised capital, significant capital outside, um, and they're uh, close to doing something um, in terms of their first launch and building their first rocket, etc. But I think even them, they are considering heave-hoeing the UK and and then going to to Europe, taking their operations solely in Europe. So it's... um, Is this partly because
2: of Brexit? Is this partly because of Britain's
1: isolated at this point? Um, I... I Again, I think I don't, I, it's part and part, I think. Brexit's had an enormous impact on just basically entrepreneurialship and the availability of money um, within, the, within the, uh, the country itself. But I think there's a, a certain amount of stagnation in terms of ambition. Um, you can raise pre-seed money up to a point and then you have to go elsewhere to become successful and scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly in the space industry, you need that scale. You need that scale of money and the availability of talent. And yeah. yeah. um, yeah. what the UK has become is essentially a, a data service center for satellites. Um, that's right. the only thing that we've become good at, which is trying to build the service model to take data from satellites and then sell it on. But what we're, uh, you know, in some shape or fashion, um, um, fashion and fashion a business model out of that and sell it to insurance companies or whatever. What we've found and what I'm seeing now is that that's starting to implode because nobody wants to buy data that you can get from Google Maps. You're essentially trying to sell Google Maps and monetize the same kind of data. Part of the
0: issue is also is that is that if you look at the addressable market for uh, space transportation, you know you have the smaller operators, so, you know Relativity, mm. um, Firefly, you know um, uh, Rocket Lab, so forth. But a lot of these are now pushing into larger, um, you know, uh, launch platforms because you know th- there's not a huge small market for microsats and things like that. You know, it tends to be. You know, um buyers of, of uh space-time, um, you know, in terms of getting getting rockets into space, tend to launch commercial communications satellites, uh, you know, and, and things like this that require just bigger, bigger platforms and bigger budgets. Although, you know, there is you know, the technology is shrinking mm. shrinking those down to some extent as well. Does
2: that I mean that, that think think there's I... a natural tendency towards monopoly? I mean, it, this seems like a time, this particular moment in history seems like a time where tech monopolies uh, are finding that at great scale, they can dominate new niches without any effort. We're certainly seeing that in artificial intelligence, large language models. Uh, There's an infrastructure and hosting costs for that are tremendous to train those big models. Seems like something similar is arising in space based on what you're telling me, that just the launch cost alone means that the industry is going to consolidate around a handful of players.
1: Is that what's happening? Yeah, I think um, I saw Space Capital talking around the fact that I think there's 106, between one hundred and sixty to two hundred launch launch type services. That are in various stages, uh, whether inception or you know serious funding, and they're expecting that to consolidate or certainly disappear and and be chopped down to about thirty by the end of the decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know, and again, we you know we have to sort of talk about the SpaceX monopoly here. Is that the fact that they're so aggressive in bringing down the costs means that any smaller, younger company has to compete with that cost. Um, uh, to, to you know per kilogram to launch to orbit. And not only that, it's again success factor. The fact that you can ride share on a larger vehicle now like Starship um is more attractive because you cannot you know you can accommodate multiple projects. Um and like Brett saying the miniaturization of some satellites means that you know you can actually send up Large, you know either larger payload what well, larger payloads of smaller projects again multiple satellites all at once rather than rely on the people that i think virgin orbit were trying to do especially for the the horizontal launch which was always a bit of an anomaly in terms of launch type capabilities you know sending a, firing a missile from the back of a what's well, how the underneath x15 the
0: launched in the in, in the days gone by but it was all suborbital
1: yeah um, yeah um, with the cube I, I mean we
0: we are we are literally now you know a day away from you know we, we, we this will this episode will air after the the first orbital flight test uh, of starship which is um, you know, pretty huge. There's a lot happening uh, next week actually as well. Um, there's a Japanese company that is going to attempt the first private uh, company to land on the surface of the moon. Um, it's uh, the hakutu R space spacecraft from a company called Ispace. So they're um, they're looking to land on the moon uh, on April 25th actually. Mm-hmm. So there's um, there's still a lot happening in the space. It's a really, I mean, there's more happening in the space industry today than there was uh, during the Apollo time. Really,
2: Oh, for sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's more that... than two players in the space, and it's kind <laughs> of entering. There's going to be competition again. You know, it's weird. The the geopolitical competition actually spurs innovation, right? It, it's um, mm-hmm. space race is a form of war, right? It's a form of uh, geopolitical conflict, just. Taken up a level, I suppose. Uh, so that will add a little competitive zest to it. But what we're starting to see is that the private space companies, they become geopolitical actors as well. You know, SpaceX yeah. has played a significant role in the UK, UK conflict. Uh, and just mm-hmm. this week, there's been news about Russians uh, trying to hack into the SpaceX, um, into their, their CubeSat network uh, to interfere with the operations there. Because they're, you know, they're giving, uh, they're giving internet access and, and guidance to uh, to Ukrainian forces. So the Russians very much want to stop that, and they both Russia and China have let it be known that they have a way to destroy those cubesats. In other words, uh, you know, they're, they're targets; they're considered legitimate targets of warfare. Fortunately, we haven't seen any of that yet, uh, though uh, the Chinese have demonstrated that they can destroy a satellite. Like they, they've already demonstrated that capability. Well,
0: both Russia and China have. But the problem with that is it creates space junk. Yeah. You know, and it's that's dangerous. It could make uh, near Earth orbit uh, um untenable over time, you know. So but uh and that spacecraft yeah. stays uh, in orbit. Yeah, have for you a heard about time? the have you heard about the um the pez dispenser for starship, Robert? No. So you know, you know, the PES thing yeah. where you get your yeah. little yeah. You know, so PES dispenser. That's right? they've basically created a satellite launcher for the Starship to launch this um the uh uh, Starlink series two satellites
2: out of the Starship. So, um, oh, so you can just yeah, pop them out be... one by one, you mean? That's yeah. what you're saying with the yeah. PES dispenser. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's our, well, listen, their their vision is to quadruple the size of, of Starlink. That's a lot. That's, we're talking thousands of satellites yeah. that will be launched. And that, and SpaceX is not the only company. Uh, Blue Origin wants to do the same thing, right? So they're seeking right. the to, to replicate went, that. And, yep. you, you can imagine tens of thousands of CubeSats and this is making some people crazy because it's not just space junk it also gets in the way of observation you know the, the ability to see what's going on in space from ground installations uh, and observation posts um, he hey, we're gonna probably need to take a break here. And what we tend to do uh, when we do the show with Theo is we, do, uh, we like to get to know our audience. Uh, we like our audience to get to know our guest a little bit better. And to do that, we ask a series of short questions. So these are short answer questions, uh, more about you and how you got into futurism. Hey, Brett, take it away, ask the short questions. We'll go to break.
0: All right, this is the lightning round. What was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to?
1: Oh wow! <laughs> um, I think it had to be. It has to be Star Trek. I, I remember it um, running home at uh, pr- when I was at primary school, um, uh, coming out of school about half past three in the afternoon, running home, having dinner, and there was a black and white portable in the kitchen, yeah. and Star Trek was on at six o'clock on BBC Two.
0: I remember watching Star Trek on black and white in my dad's office. Yeah, on the black and white. So yeah. Um, get that. What um, What technology do you think has most changed humanity?
1: Oh, it has to be the internet. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it literally was a black swan uh, event that nobody could have really predicted. And of course it just took it by storm. Um, has it changed it in good and bad ways? Yes, it has. Um, but the one that's had the most profound effect, definitely the internet.
0: And name a futurist or a sci-fi
1: author entrepreneur that has influenced you and why? oh good question there um i okay so one of my, one of my favorite authors is frederick Pohl, um uh, old sort of site you know 1950s 60s science science fiction writer and um, he wrote a book called Gateway, and it, to, today it's, it's still one of my favorite books because it combines kind of future gaze towards what humanity is like, the discovery of an alien civilization and fast travel to the stars in, in, in a completely different way. Um, and the fact it has a robotic, uh, robotic psychotherapist called Sigmund Freud um, is, is, is <laughs> especially interesting because the story is told through some of his sessions.
0: It's like that depressed robot on Red Redshift, was it? A Red Red Dwarf? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, like, I, yeah, yeah. You know
2: what I'm saying. What about, I was just thinking about is how funny it is. We need to put context around these science fiction authors, like Frederick Pohl, or earlier I mentioned Robert Heinlein, because for a new generation. These are names from the ancient past. You know, they're yeah. not about yeah. the future at all. Yeah. They're about the 1950s. There was a time where you could read everything in science fiction when we were kids. You could be familiar with right. all the authors, you know, Andre Norton and so forth, right? yeah. Ray Bradbury. Most, yeah. But unfortunately yeah. now it's expanded. And now every every sci-fi author writes a series of books. You know, it's not mm. a single book. They're writing yeah. a, a multi-part series. So they're absorbing more and more of your attention. All right, let's go to break. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back after this with more from Theo Priestley on The Futurists. Provoke
0: Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, its spin off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the FinTech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg. Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. I am your host Brett King with my co-host Rob Tursak, and uh, we have Theo Priestley, the futurist, on the spot for today in the hotspot. Um, Theo, um, you know, uh, when 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 do do you
1: identify
0: yourself as a futurist, um, or is that sort of something that other people gave you the moniker of?
1: I think it's more uh, something that other people kind of started to call me just because of my writing and what I started to speak about in general. I mean, I'd always looked at emerging technology trends. And for a while, I worked as a chief of technology evangelist um, for a software company. I and mean, it was my role to kind of project forward to clients and to the external market, you know, what these trends looked like and where they were going to converge, what it was going to mean for like their businesses, et cetera. And, and I think and like I said uh, right at the start, I think I kind of fell into the the futurist kind of um, uh, tagline more than anything else. It was it was wasn't something that I officially studied or gained a qualification in, and yeah. um, and it's something I don't think you need to have a qualification in. It's definitely a mindset, um, and I've spoken yeah, to numerous children or you know teenage people um, who. Um, who have that kind of mindset, and 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 I'd love to see them coming into this profession more so than the you know the old grey hairs that we have on on you know here today. I
2: think, I think one of the things our audience is
1: interested in is uh, methodology. We like to think about, you know, we have
2: to learn about how do you think about the future? You talked about a couple of methods. One is that you read science fiction, you think about alternative scenarios. Another one is that you blog ideas that aren't fully baked, so you're putting your ideas out there to the public to get some feedback. What are your other methodologies? How do you follow trends? How do you keep up with all the different things that are changing? Is Do you have some particular process for that?
1: So, I, I, so on the current side of things, obviously I use social media uh, an awful lot to actually listen to what is going on. Um, and then I project backwards in terms of what has happened in the past that we could potentially relate to what's happening today to try and find a correlation to project forward a few years and see where it could go you know what are the effects on people what are the effects on uh, society at large what happened in the past that could be projected on top of business and would this current trend necessarily track the same way so it's almost like a, a, a weird you know, tangle of combinations of things, you know, of of different types of methodologies yeah. that I'd rather cherry pick from rather than f- yeah. follow one specifically. It was like yeah. back in the day twenty-five years ago when I used to do lean and six sigma in business transformation. Um yes, me. and <laughs> oh <laughs> I used to do COBOL as well. That's even worse. <laughs> um but um there are a lot of purists out there, and they're like, "No, you must follow this, you know, yeah. green belt and then black belt, and we must drill down to the nth degree to find the, you know, the patterns and things like that." And lean, you know, you have various methodologies, and lean can ban et cetera, etc. etc. and and I was I was more uh, akin to, well, I'll take that piece from lean's you know six sigma and I'll take that piece from lean and I'll mash them together and actually I'll get the result that I want. Well, well not the mm-hmm. result I want. I wasn't like trying to manufacture the result but come to the methodology that works for the particular scenario that I was working in. Mm -hmm. And it's far Mm -hmm. more effective, I find, especially in futurism, to kind of use a combination of different methodologies and different methods and research styles.
2: How important is timeline? Uh, We had a guest on recently who talked about Ray Kurzweil, and one of the points Kurzweil always makes... Is that timeline matters that you need to time your predictions. You can't just make forecasts because you know someday we'll all take vacations on Mars. But we've had something.
0: some futurists that don't, right? That's right. Some people but they don't. don't want to stick to a timeline. Yeah,
2: and I think that's kind of bogus. Candidly, it's like, what kind of futurist are you if you can't put a date on your prediction?
1: Yeah, um, I'm. I'm. I'm of that kind of sort of ilk where it's like, if you can at least sort of hang your hat on something mm-hmm. and even if you're wrong you can always readjust your forecasting that's the yeah. thing whereas yeah. if you don't hang your hat on on a date then you can say oh i i i said this would happen and you know yes. when when did you say it and when was it supposed to happen yeah. so yeah
2: and to kurtzweil's credit you know that you know the, you know the definition predictions, of predictions future- and actually his predictions when they come true they're you know, you can say he predicted this would happen by this date. Mm. And generally speaking, he's pretty accurate. Relatively speaking, I would say he's rel- he's pretty accurate. Not as accurate as he claims. No,
0: I was going to say, Theo, you know the definition of a futurist? What, the real? Is there a real definition of a futurist? That's my, de- my definition. Never been okay. wrong today.
2: <laughs> Robert's heard that about 60 times, I think. I yeah, agree <laughs> It keeps getting better though, so keep keep good, good, keep going with it. So Thea, when you look out at the landscape today, you look at the news, you watch what's happening in socials, you're thinking about the future. What gets you excited? Like, what are the trends now? Where
1: you say, "Oh, that's cool. That's something I want to explore. I want to learn more about that." I so. One of the, th- a couple of the trends. Ones we've already covered in extensive detail, which is space, because you can see that the the common good that that will happen in the future if we do it the right way. Um, the other one, which which really still fascinates me, is and and it might cause people to sort of roll eyes and groan, um, is not only Web three but the metaverse as well. Um, so Web three, I I fundamentally believe that it's a shift that will run alongside the old web until a point where it, you can either make a choice of which which web you want to live in is it a decentralized web or is it is it the one that we we grew up or some of us grew up with and i do believe some of the core tenets of decentralization data sovereignty etc will actually extend into our lives and one of those um, again, I, I went back to check on old blogs, and one of those was like, "How do we use those kind of blockchain and decentralized technologies to ensure data sovereignty when we look at the artificial intelligence trend?" And you know, uh, stop the data scraping, and how do I protect my my identity? For example, we're seeing people's identity now being cloned, voices, mm-hmm. likenesses, etc. Mm-hmm. So there's some exciting technologies there and then the metaverse is something i think once we get past the oh it looks like roblox oh it looks like fortnite stage and actually understand that it is multifaceted realities that work all together at the same time then there are some really exciting uh, things that could happen with with that technology as well and then of yeah. course you have the convergence you know all a lot of these times people go you know, people think of them as very siloed trends. Um, and they're not. Yeah. Um, they're, 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 at some point, they will all converge. Um, well, they and the log- accelerate
2: each other, right? So yeah. so all the technologies you just mentioned rely on one common piece of core infrastructure, which is microprocessors. And, you know, the big advances now in uh, semiconductors are happening in, in graphical processing units, GPUs, not CPUs. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's that's where more
2: law is shifted to now. It's shifted to, exactly. So the more so the advances in GPU are uh, driving parallel processing. Right, that's what you use a GPU for. You can't use it for a single threaded process the way you use a CPU. Parallel processing advances things like artificial intelligence, particularly large language models and deep learning, uh, real time 3D graphics, which is really relevant to things like the metaverse and games and then of course crypto mining right so these mm. three fields benefit from parallel processing and the cost and the performance of those gpus is dropping right so your your price performance index is uh, is improving constantly meaning basically a dollar of money, you know a dollar of computing gets cheaper or more powerful each year uh, each every 18 months or so that means that uh, you know as things get cheaper we're going to use more of it so it's easy to make a forecast here that you say well, okay the things that gpus power which is 3D crypto or blockchain broadly, and artificial intelligence, particularly deep learning. Those three things, we're gonna use a lot more of them because the cost of it's gonna go down. One of the big impediments to crypto in general and and any kind of blockchain consensus-based Web3 activity is that it was co- the cost of computing was expensive. You remember a few years ago, people were complaining that we were you know, melting the earth or burning up the, the environment because of all the crypto mining that was going on.
0: Bitcoin mining. Yeah. Yeah. But
2: that's gradually going away as an issue. Uh, you know, Today, arguably that complaint has shifted over to large language models, which are equally environmentally destructive if you want to use that lens. Uh, but that issue is going to go away over time uh, as the cost of compute goes down and processing power gets greater. Uh, it'll consume less resources, and of course, the f- algorithms get more efficient as well. So those three things are going to reinforce each other, and that's where it gets really exciting to see those three trends converge.
0: So even um, you know, when we talk about Apple's launch of their uh, smart glasses platform, um, you can see you know, smart glasses are a natural device for marrying with a personal AI we mm. you know where you you know it's responsive to your communication uh your behaviors and so forth you know i i, I definitely see those two uh technologies converging
1: yeah the, that's the spatial computing that i think we were promised maybe about five or six years ago yeah. um and especially from the personal assistant point of view what google amazon sir apple all promised us from from their personal assistants which were pretty much stunted until these large language models have come along. Um, To your point, Robert, about chips, uh, there's some really interesting things happening right now. Um, So there's obviously neuromorphic, which is essentially, you know, mapping the the algorithmic, how the calculations and the algorithms work according to how the brain works. But now we're seeing something called organoid intelligence, which is essentially putting human stem cells onto chips mm-hmm. to make them more efficient at processing. Now, who's to say in the next, you know, you know and then you've got BCI, brain-computer interfacing as well, on top of that. Now, who's to say... That the whole idea of, you know, in terms of Ray Kurzweil's singularity, isn't going to happen, um, or, or is going to happen potentially faster because of some of these outlier um, uh, breakthroughs. You know, organoids, mm-hmm. uh, for example, on on chips could lead to more um, integrated or, or organic means to plug ourselves into, or have a chip um, implanted in our brain. Uh, which leads to us becoming part of the singularity that Ray was already, you know, was talking about and uh, that was going to happen in the 2050s or 2060s. So yeah, it's, we are the Borg.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, made, he, he
1: made the forecast and he didn't
2: necessarily say how it was going to come about. He just no. said what's going to happen and the how is up for grabs. But what both of you just mentioned, both Brett and Theo mentioned, is this role of the human being in this process. So we tend to think of this stuff as isolated from us. It's out on the cloud, it's out on a computer. it's you know, it's distant from us. We use it. We're the beneficiary of it, but it's not about us, right? But the reality, you know when you think about uh, AI in the context of augmented reality, what it really means is that the human beings are the sensors for the network. We're the ones walking around with the gear and we're collecting the data. We do it today. You know, this mm-hmm. Apple Watch is collecting data for Apple's intelligence right now, and when I have goggles on my head that are gathering data about the world around me, basically I'm being the eyes and ears for the robot, right? For the AI, uh, it'll collect data based on my behavior and my motion as I go through go through uh, time and space. But
0: there's or, there's another trend uh, apart from Moore's law. The overarching trend is that computers have got easier to use and have been made more accessible as the yeah. technologies improved. But ultimately, the ultimate I, version of that right yeah. is that computing is just built into the world around you. Yeah. But the responsiveness to you as an operator individually requires it to per- be personalized. It requires adaptation to your behavior, your styles. And I think your that's needs. why
2: ChatGPT is the most successful consumer app launched in the last yeah. 10 years and yeah. it's grown so fast. Cause like for once people can deal with an AI directly. We've been working with AI. We've been using AI in search and maps and translation and so forth. You know, even the way movies are recommended to you on Netflix, there's artificial intelligence and all that, but consumers don't really see that. We don't have any experience of that. But for the first time ever, ChatGPT made it possible. You know, inside OpenAI, there was a little bit of a debate there, right? Because the artificial intelligence researchers, which form the core of that organization, they didn't want to release it to the consumer public. They wanted to keep it a large language model as something that the researchers could use or that industry could use. Uh, but Sam Altman pushed for it. And overnight, this organization went from being, you know, a kind of a, a research facility to running the most popular consumer app right now on the planet, the hottest consumer app on the planet. People are really responding to it. So it's your point, but uh, computers are going to get easier to use because they're going to, we're going to be able to talk to them. We won't need to program them or speak to them in a specialized language. Or memorize commands and so forth. Go
0: full futurist on us, Theo. What do you what do you think the world's gonna be like with these these technologies in the world? You know, how do you how do you think about our daily lives in this future world?
1: You know, if I if I was gonna go futurist, full futurist and say 2050 or 2060 for example then I think you know we are going to have the kind I would like to see actually I would like to see us lose our dependence on on the mobile phone and the mobile phone is replaced by these personalized assistants in a sense so the, you know the old Star Trek communicators where you just tap it and you're like hey do something for me blah 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 and, and it spawns numbers of agents little you know little automated agents that run away in the background and perform the tasks and then come back and tell me what it's done um, I, I see that as being far more, again, intuitive a world to live in than us being tied to a particular screen or device. Um, and it feels very much like Her, that movie with uh, Joaquin oh, right, Phoenix, right, for right. example. Um, but what what kind of world does that leave us for people if that level of automation um, is, is running rampant in the world? And I think this is the thing that keeps me up at night at the moment. Um, and, and I might go full, full futurist, but also contrarian here in, in, the, in the sense that, are we letting this technology run far ahead of us without actually understanding exactly what the impact is? So I mean, Goldman Sachs has said 300 million jobs potentially are at risk. Most of them are white collar, granted, um, but 300 million equates to one in 10. Now, that's quite a high proportion when you think about the global workforce. One in 10 are going to lose their jobs. So to me, that structural unemployment that we've not seen at right, a right. um, uh, level before. But hang on, do you really
2: think that's plausible? Because I do. Two, there's two responses to that. The first thing is a healthy envi- A healthy economic environment is about destroying jobs. That's the essence of productivity growth. It's what we've been doing for 300 years since the Industrial Revolution. But the second thing is. We've been hearing this prediction for years. Every time there's been an innovation in the computing industry, it's going to destroy jobs. It's going to destroy jobs. It turns out people are pretty adaptable, and human beings are pretty. Yeah, good. but at we've never had new a news. tech.
0: Uh, we've never had a tech that can simultaneously destroy many jobs across many mm. industries at the same time. That's the difference, right?
1: Yeah, I, I, I Although, kind of is it going to do it though? Because
2: listen, we, you know, I've talked to attorneys about ChatGPT, and they're like. Yeah, it might be something I can use as an assistant. It's not going to replace an attorney. You're not going to hire ChatGPT to argue. Not ChatGPT, but what comes in five yeah. years or ten years, you know. I think. So, I think but that's then that's, that's, your, a, that's not destroying jobs all at once, as you just said, right? So that you just undermine your argument, and and I think no, that's there's, a, I think there's there's a, a great way to think about it.
1: Yeah, potentially, but there's an all at once, in, in ter- you know, when we say all at once, I think when you look at the industrial revolution and things like that, that all at once turned into what, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. 50 and, years and, yeah. and yeah. Yeah, and, and slowly people filled the gaps that were left behind with different types of jobs. What AI does is actually disrupt that timeline and, and concatenates it or whatever you want to call it, truncates it into, you know, a space of single digit years rather than 20, 30 years kind of thing. And society and governmental policy and fiscal policy and, and everything else it's not geared up to um, to accept one to accept it and two to move to counter it. So if you have 300 million, the thing is as well is that 300 million is is a starting point mm-hmm, because as right, these right. things get more intelligent, and you you essentially remove rungs of the career ladder in various industries. What you find is the ones that are left are essentially going to be there purely to train the algorithm to get better. So you're left, your 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 knowledge and your experience will slowly be sucked into the into the machine as as it were to train it to get better. Um until to until the point is that it will, you know, let's put it this way. I hear you, Theo, Theo,
2: I hear you. And I'm often the person on this show who is expressing the most pessimistic viewpoint. (laughs) This time, (laughs) amazingly, I'm on the opposite side of the table. And I'm like, look, look, humans can adapt. People can learn these skills. Right now, there is no AI that's going to replace anybody. Just to talk about what's happening today. You're right. In the future, there might be some super fantastic AI that does replace jobs, but that is not the case. There isn't a single profession from any, you know, code writing and so forth. What the AIs generate today requires a human with expertise to come in and double check. Now, your point about knocking out rungs on the on the ladder, the career ladder, that's a valid point, right? As a, as a system starts to absorb more information and maybe one or two expert people keep their jobs, but fewer new people are hired into those professions, but those new people are going to move into other fields. They're going to move into other kinds of jobs. And I think the potential for AI to create new jobs is going to exceed, and, and actually not just create new jobs, but confer superpowers on people because you'll have all that intelligence at your disposal as a tool to use. It's a new kind of job. We'll have to have a new kind of skill set. but humans are pretty adaptable and we're very good at coming up with new needs. 15 years ago, nobody knew they needed a social network. 20 years ago, nobody knew they needed a smartphone. We're incredibly good at generating new needs that we never knew human beings required. So here I am being the optimist for once, Brett. I love it. it so, all <laughs> no, no, well, awesome this is sitting in your yeah, chair
0: for once. I know, I know, I know. But um, did you, I don't know if you've heard Chamath, uh, uh, what's his oh, God, uh, family yeah. name? Yeah, He he's speaking about the challenge to VCs right now is that, you know, you used to employ twenty to thirty million dollars on a um, you know, a startup um to to get them get their labor force up to scratch so they could, you know, get their minimum viable product. And he's like, with AI, I need three or four people. Right. So we are already starting to see investment cycles that are changing because of that. Um, I personally think I have a slightly different approach to this. I think climate is going to produce all the jobs we need. I don't think it's AI is going to produce new jobs. I think the new jobs will be in climate mitigation. But that's my my view.
1: I I wrote I wrote a rather tongue in cheek piece, which was um, when we have structural unemployment, the. uh, the the savior of the day will be the people who want to take us to Mars. In which case, you'll have indentured servitude to build new colonies. <laughs> yeah. But then, hopefully, we'll get um, you know, new Martian
0: economics. You know, which well, that's be, it. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, and, let, and let's you know, sort of Martian economics are kin- different than what we have today. That, that's great. They, <laughs> yes. These
2: spindly weaklings climb off, or sort of <laughs> crawl off of the spaceship that they've been on for three years, and they've been irradiated, and and they're going to be like gasping for air in a place that doesn't have any. any these kind are of just atmosphere. technical
0: <laughs> solutions. Dude. You know, like I would go to Mars in a heartbeat. You know, I know Theo is probably with me as well. I, I would that's do a, it in two years on Mars.
2: That's a one-year know? trip. Well, how would you come back? Oh boy, this is a whole different episode that we're about to embark on <laughs> hey, Theo, man, it's been a great pleasure talking to you i really get a kick out of likewise. it likewise thanks for doing it well Thank we certainly
0: know. went full futurist which i love you know i love when we get sci-fi on the podcast
2: <laughs> all right well Theo, where can people thanks, find Theo, you on the web if they want to read about your stuff
1: um, yeah, I've got a medium blog at Theo. It's called, I've got a Substack called, uh, theology. Uh, I've, I've kind of written some like pieces that. on, on, uh, on artificial intelligence. Um, and I mainly annoy everybody on, um, Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. Fabulous. That's great Theo.
0: branding though, man. Theology. I love that. That's, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> you said Theo that Priestley. was a challenge. Yeah, that's fantastic.
2: Theo Priestley, it's been great to have you on The Futurist this week. Thanks for joining us. And a big round of thanks to the folks at Provoke Media that make this show possible, including our engineer, Kevin Hirshhorn, who does a great job of making us sound intelligent and cutting out the stuff where we screw up and mix up and have a technical glitch. And our producer, Elizabeth, thank you all very much for your help and support. And thanks to our audience for listening. Uh, the people who've been listening to the show have been great. The feedback's been positive. The audience is growing we love that keep sending your suggestions number
0: one baby number one the number one futurist podcast in the world
2: thank y'all very much and next week we will be back with yet another futurists on the futurist show and so i guess fred it's time for us to do our classically fumbled outro here where i will see you in the in the future future. (laughs) well that's it for the futurists this week if you like the show we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.